If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to The Fader Interview. I'm Alex Robert Ross, Editorial Director of The Fader. Anoni's voice has been a salve to millions since the release of her band's debut album at the turn of the 21st century. But in 2016, she weaponized it. Up to that point, her lyrics had always been prescient, often prophetic, but normally cushioned by the softness of her tone. On Hopelessness, on the other hand, the only album she's released under her mononym alone, her words were razor sharp, blistering with anger as she sang about drone bombings, global warming, and the other disappointments of the Obama presidency. That record's production is pummeling too, assisted by Hudson Mohawk and One Oatrix Point Never in peak form, creating a sound that feels urgently of its time. Seven years later, Anoni is returning with a statement that's softer in tone than her last, but no less deliberate in its message. She's still calling out injustices, from senseless cruelty toward trans people to our myopic obsession with creature comforts at the cost of our planet. But the tenderness is back, as is her band, The Johnsons. Recorded with prolific producer Jimmy Hogarth, My Back Was a Bridge for You to Cross places Anoni's vocals over pastoral arrangements that recall the lushness of 70s soul. The record begins with It Must Change, a track about paradigm shifts and the breaking of binaries, and ends with You Be Free, in which an elder warrior on the front lines of the fight for universal civil rights gives the next generation permission to enjoy her hard-fought victories. The album's cover art is a photograph of Marsha P. Johnson, the queer liberationist to whose memory Anoni has dedicated much of her career, including her band's name. Smiling out from across time, Johnson's face is a reminder of both the many achievements social activism has won and the infinite work that remains to be done. In conversation with the faders Raphael Helfand last month, Anoni discussed motherhood, volcanoes, and the false dichotomy between darkness and light. It Must Change is the world's introduction to your new album. It's got a message that could be applied, I think, to like nearly any type of relationship, personal or political, which is a big change for most of the songs on Hopelessness would provide really explicit context for their messages. Can you walk me through the shift in perspective that led to like this change of approach? Hopelessness is probably like the most kind of strategic record I've ever made. I had an intention to slightly disarm the listener. There was an aspect of the record which broke a kind of tradition that people have of hearing my voice or considering my voice as a source of kind of comfort or solace. You know, hopelessness weaponized my voice in a different way. It it was more challenging because I was sort of taking on a lot of different roles and points of view in the songs and um, kind of holding my own hand to the fire in a way. My intention on the outset with that record was to sort of have a record that talked about my complicity in broken systems, like my complicity as a participant, as a consumer, as a supporter of of diseased systems, willingly or unwillingly, as uh, you know, anyone in the thoroughfare of society. It's it's impossible 
to pay taxes and not be monstrously complicit in, in what's really happening, let alone, you know, so many other things. So the record had a very hard edge to it. And um, it had a, a toughness, which was really um, meaningful to me. And I love that record with all my heart. I really do. I didn't know if I was going to do another record after that, to be honest. And I, I took several years just to contemplate what to do next, if I was going to keep doing music or if I was going to work more on other things. And this record kind of came like a boon in a way. I called on a whim almost, called my label in London, Rough Trade, and asked them if they knew any producers that might want to do like a more soul-based record. Because the people who taught me how to sing, you know, the first models for me of how to sing, besides like Kate Bush, was someone like Boy George or Alison Moyer. And they were singing in such a specific style, even with American accents, you know, and they were singing so convincingly and so movingly. Those early songs of early 80s really was the first time I heard like the affairs of the heart being like expressed in a way that I could recognize as being alive, that mirrored how I felt inside. It's taken many years to sort of reconcile and understand, like trace that trail of breadcrumbs back to the source and how did it come to be. A 20-year-old Irish queen in 1981 was singing with the voice of like a seasoned Black American female vocalist and that there was this like incredible sort of bizarre, complicated, difficult lineage that's embedded into my first impulses as a singer that I didn't even understand, obviously, for many years. And I think I wanted to do something that just circled that and started to talk about it. Honestly, it's a conversation I can't finish, but it was a conversation I always want to stand consciously beside. So that was the reason why I asked, let's make a what they call blue-eyed soul. Boy George was a blue-eyed soul singer and those before him as well. But it all came back to all of those amazing musicians, American musicians, traveling across the sea in the 50s and the early 60s and just pollinating the culture, transforming the culture forever across Europe and across the world. So I suppose that was my thought. The record isn't just that, but that was the starting point of dreaming about making a new record and just to explore it. And they recommended a producer, Jimmy Hogarth, who worked with Duffy and worked with Amy Winehouse a bit and a few other people who I loved. And we just started a collaboration and it was just, there was a lot of ease. We have a really great rapport and a lot of things just came to pass. I brought in about like 10 years of writings and things that I haven't really delved into because Hopelessness, the lyric content was really specific for that record. The last time I really wrote a record like this was more than 10, 12 years ago. The production on Hopelessness is like also like immediately identifiable with the, with the mid-2010s. Um, like at the very least, that album could not have been made at any earlier point in time. Did the less like overtly contemporary themes of My Back Was a Bridge Feet Across sort of unlock the temporality of the, of the production with Jimmy? Or was it more like the other way around? I mean, honestly, I do feel that the themes on the record are utterly contemporary. It's the same story. I've never really wavered. I always think of myself as an accumulative artist, even if the shifts seem more or less vigorous. Like, I don't really see a difference between the material on this and the material on the previous record. It's just a, I would say that this record has um, like a note of tenderness in it and self-reflection and an idea about interiority that the other record was kind of brutal with. I'm interested more and more in what I'm thinking of as structural activism. And I think that's what the record is trying to address, the brokenness of the broadest structures, theologically, mythologically, 
sociologically, hierarchically, in terms of how we're organising ourselves collectively and in a way that is promising the end of species. And it must change specifically. Um, I love like the counterpoint between your spoken and sung vocals and like that idea of light as fire in the darkness is also like such a poignant and self-evident way, I think, of, of looking at the word in ge- world in general, because it both like complicates and simplifies things in that, on the one hand, it resists like the easy dichotomies through which we're taught to see the world, but on the other, it sort of necessitates the active creation of that fire as the only alternative to succumbing to the darkness. Is that how you see it, or am I, am I just totally misreading that? I think that's a beautiful way of thinking about it. I, I think, you know, everyone's going to have their own thoughts about like a provocation like that, but I think what you said was beautiful and in my imagination, the idea that light is the opposite of darkness, but rather the child of something that occurs within darkness, is a beautiful way of reimagining the way things are laid out. As you said, like I was raised in a Christian framework, in a Catholic framework, in which the whole world was built on opposites. Honestly, it was this conversation that emerged from the last five years of conversation about gender identity and the insistence on this idea of a non-binary, looking at the semantics of gender and this idea of two genders and this oppositeness and this this idea as if it was a fact and then realizing that in other cultures and in other ways of thinking about our identities that, that just wasn't organized that way. And yet our fanciful, supposedly rational take on the world. It's a sort of a our forensic thought that there's only two genders is actually more a product of 2000 years of evangelical Christianity than it is a product of like a perceptive reality. And once I started thinking about that, I started applying that to other ideas about opposites that I deal with all the time in my thinking and realized how how much this notion of opposites constricted my way of seeing. All my life I was raised to think there was light and darkness, 12 hours of light and 12 hours of darkness. That's a many centuries thought that those are two equally weighted opposites. But then when I just think about it in a different way, and you realize that the whole of the universe is just giant womb of darkness, like a primordial darkness, and that there are these tiny fires burning in it, that's like a much more spectral and much more complex and very, very beautiful, like diamonds inside a mountain idea. And diamonds aren't the opposite of a mountain. There's something that exists within a mountain. And it's, it's the same thing with male and female, like maleness and femaleness may not be opposites. Maleness might be something that exists within femaleness. We've been raised for 2000 years to believe that men are the equally weighted opposite of women. And actually, there could be a totally different way of laying out that um, paradigm that imagines that actually we're all women, we're all made of the Earth's body, we're all made of primordial darkness. And from that, fire emerges and creates this beautiful new paradigm of maleness. It's a subset of her body. You know, it's a totally different way of dreaming about our relationships. And it actually dismantles the idea that men and women are a, unfathomably different from each other, but also be hierarchically organized and see ultimately they're each other's enemies or each other's predators. You know, if men's bodies could like listen with humility to the fact that they're made of women's bodies, there could be like a new humility that might emerge from an idea like that, a, a re-reckoning with what's happening empirically rather than this horrible 2,000-year nightmare that's climaxing in like, an apocalyptic suicidal exit 
from creation, that there might be other strategies that we could reach for, ways of thinking, ways of understanding the, the world that's organized around us that might help us to make different decisions. I know that's a lot of words for a couple of sentences in the song, but that, that's what those sentences really mean to me. You know, that's what I'm saying really in that song when I say it must change. It's like we have to find a new way of dreaming that we don't even have the words really to wrap around yet. Everyone I know thinks that within a hundred years, there won't be like a reasonable life on earth. Like I've not really heard one person counter that point of view. If we really are in such a final embrace of that idea, it's worth like dreaming in a more extreme way about new ways that we can manifest or organize ourselves to try different approaches. song that comes next go ahead it's one of my favorites on the record even though it's so short it seems like it's sort of like the flip side to like the more constructive it must change philosophy it's a track where someone's resigning themselves to the more destructive nature of a relationship whether it's like with a person or society at large i'm curious how you see this track within the larger arc of my back was a bridge given that like the overall ethos of the album i would say leans toward that more constructive philosophy I mean, I believe in motherhood. I believe in the power of motherhood. I believe in like the power of like a mother that in times embodies Kali. I believe in the power of volcanoes. When I think of a feminine principle, I don't just think of it as some kind of pastoral, toe-bound, like milkmaid idea about femaleness. If a earth, if a body, if a mother, if her son has a knife to her throat, she knows her blood's gonna like go back into the ground and find her way. Go ahead. Cut my throat. See what happens next. The article in the paper today is that the North Sea is five degrees Celsius hotter than it should be, and that they're fearing like a mass die-off of coral, kelp, seaweed, and, and fish. North Sea never gets hotter. North Sea is like the last bastion of cold water. Like the fact that the North Sea is like five degrees Celsius too hot and it's the beginning of the summer. She's saying, go ahead, cut my throat, see what comes next. Watch the oxygen disappear from your atmosphere. Watch yourself starve to death from a lack of oxygen. I can't stop you. Go ahead. When is it going to dawn on us collectively that we have to shift? Maybe she will use a shock strategy to try to wake you up. Like, how many options does she really have to wake us up? How many options do we have to wake each, each other up or ourselves up? Like, here I am prattling on, but I'm still just, like, utterly embedded in, in complicity. How do we begin to, like, tunnel our way out of systems that are life extinguishing. So it's a song about addiction. Another song that sort of describes a relationship that's like in some ways destructive um, is Scapegoat. That one is told like very lovingly and with like such a lush arrangement that it almost tricks the listener into seeing the messages more positive. I say like almost tricks you because because your voice is so clear and present that it's kind of like impossible in the end not to hear at least some of what you're saying, even just like listening passively. I think you're one of like a select few artists who can do that, who can make like 
really gorgeous transcendent sounding music with a message that's like impossible to ignore. I'm wondering how much effort you put into the aesthetic beauty of your music at this point in your life as you like continue to tackle pretty heavy themes. Is it something that's effortless for you at this point or is it something you still like work and struggle to achieve? The people that taught me how to sing, that's what they did. I'm just really just like an iteration of a like a traditional gesture as a singer. Everyone from, like I said, Boy George, to the people that taught him how to sing, people like Nina Simone, Otis Redding, Donny Hathaway, Alison Moyet, Elizabeth Fraser, people like Zelda by Jean. It's normal for singers to take a piece of something that's painful and to work with it as a diamond. A lot of singing, especially 20th century singing, that deals with ecstatic expression, sources on some level from a point of agony and then shakes it into something transcendental. And again, that's really like a legacy of Black American music of the 20th century. You know, it's a gift that's been given to the whole world as a sort of a survival strategy that is alive in music. It's one of the only places it's alive, is how to feel and have your eyes open at the same time. I don't really think of like my seat in that as that unusual or original. I think it's more just a reflection of the people who taught me how to sing. But it's certainly not something I invented. I think just because of the the way my voice found its edges. I think also because I was like particularly committed to this idea of having a right to have feelings because of my particular experience as a kid, that I always moved towards finding ways to voice sounds that would to other people be uncomfortable or what other people might perceive as too vulnerable. I've always said, like, weaponize my vulnerability in a weird way as a singer. Like, I had an ability to make sound, and using that sound, I was so lucky to be born in a moment where I was allowed to, like, manipulate my way through the culture and actually reach the light of day. There have been a million people before me that had no access. You know, I'm, like, one of the first people, like me, that's had access to participate in, like, the daylight conversation about what's really happening. It's really like um, like a kind of a miracle in a way. And I'm very aware of that. You talked about like sort of the comfort. I've heard you talk about this before too, like how like people sort of rely on your voice as a source of comfort. And uh, on this record, I think the song that I find most comforting, ironically, is the one that deals with Lou Reed's death, Sliver of Ice. So the idea of finding beauty in something as simple as an ice cube while you're reckoning with the immediacy of your own mortality is so powerful to me. You must have had like a really beautiful relationship with Lou that he was able to share that with you. It's quite a broad question, but like, are you a believer in like the philosophy that, that like finitude is what gives life its meaning? The word life is kind of weird. Like it's a binary setup, like the way we think about it. Like life and death is supposed to be two opposites. But there's like things I've heard like from other people that don't really lay it out that way. Like when I went to Australia and worked with the Mardu when I was privileged to be invited to spend some time with the Mardu in the Western Australian desert, they wouldn't necessarily have said that that was how it was. You know, so I don't really know about that. I, I, it's just I don't know the definitions of the words to be able to answer it. But I don't have an, any sense of um, how this all plays out. It's not so much meaning that I'm interested in. It's not really the meaning that he was expressing to me. It was the gratitude and the rapture that he was expressing to me. It was a sense of aliveness. I think what it was was the present, being in the present. Like he was like viscerally ex experiencing sensation, you know, and I think that, if anything, it's maybe meaning that was getting in the way of his feeling of being alive. So I think he's just expressing a vivid feeling of aliveness that was beautiful to see and be near. 
There wasn't enough and why am I alive now like the two songs before the last song they all sort of like touch on a similar question of aliveness why am I alive deals with like the desire to stop living because the world keeps getting worse but I think like that sentiment is undercut a little bit by like the urgency and like the aliveness of the music I think this that one's like the closest that this album gets to like Nisimum tribute would it be like a stretch to consider the mu- the relationship between the music and lyrics of, of that song is like fire in the darkness. Definitely like the music has a big part in the meaning of that song because the, the music is this really like unfurling, like lush kind of tapestry. There's a sense of abundance in the music. There's this kind of proliferation in the music that is the backdrop to a kind of a sense of loneliness a loneliness in the face of these times. I mean, that song, of any of the songs on the record, most directly addresses Marvin Gaye's album, What's Going On. That's the song that really, for me, is in conversation with that album, that legacy record of What's Going On, because that was the record where he really went topically from song to song and accumulated like a worldview in the course of an album. And that was really like what I tried to do with Hopelessness. Definitely like that blueprint was What's Going On. You know, with this record, it's a bit, it was more like that song in particular and one or two other songs on the record. We're trying to address that that record across a bridge of time. You know, what's amazing about what's going on is that it was recorded in like the early 70s, like 71 or 1970, you know, which is now by environmental standards was a considered like a lush paradise. You know, they don't even really start comparing present day statistics to like old statistics about nature and numbers until like the 80s. You know, people hardly ever even go back to 1970 as a baseline because, it, you know, it's considered a, a time of abundance. But in his prophetic view, he could see, along with probably many of his peers and other people who were, had their eyes open, the writing on the wall. And now here we are 50 years later, and everything that he sung about is as if it were today, except just amplified exponentially. And I suppose, like, one key difference because of my experience and my story and where I come from I don't lean on this notion of like Christian mythology as refuge although there are aspects of it that I can relate to like this notion of divine child I don't really have a, a an answer to it except that I agree with you that the loneliness in the lyric sits in relationship to a world that's still living. And I think sometimes like, it's hard to hold space for both of those things at once. Like if you're really trying to see what's really happening, it's hard to also still stay grounded and to be in touch with a story that's still in the process, you know? Trying to accept our 
you be free. I, th- I think it's a really perfect closer. It's like be free for me is like such a simple, beautiful sentiment. It's one that obviously reflects like the cover of the album, Marsha P. Johnson, who did so much work so that others could be free after her. I was hoping we could close this out with briefly like kind of like the story of like you kissing Marsh P. Johnson's hand on on the day she died and like sort of that being like the emanation point of uh of Anoni and the Johnsons at least. I moved to New York in 1990 as a student. I lived by the West Side Highway and the West Village in the 80s and 70s was like a gay kind of mecca. Marsha was very much a very visible figure on Christopher Street from the 60s, 70s, 80s as well. She worked at different points also up and around Times Square. When I came to New York, I was directed towards her as someone to respect, an elder. She was considered a saint in her own lifetime. That's how people described her when she was alive. Like certain people would describe her that way. Other queens would really loved her. She was like particularly um, generous of spirit and um, was known to panhandle all day on Christopher Street and then someone else would come and ask her for something and she'd give all the money she got all day to someone else. And I've heard her say, and I've also heard Sylvia Rivera say in an interview, we're not free until everyone's free, which is like a classic kind of motif of the civil rights movement. You would hear that, you know, but but to hear it coming from the mouths of like homeless sex workers, people really afforded the lowest tier of freedom in American society. People who were the shock absorbers for the worst excesses of the loathing of women the shock of the worst excesses of uh, racism and homophobia. People who simply had no access to things that most people just take for granted. It's what I would call kind of Jesus as a girl. Like Marsha P. Johnson for me is like Jesus as a girl. On that song I wrote, River of Sorrow, which I wrote right after they died, it's like she's walking the water between the peers. She was like, a, in her lifetime, she embodied like transcendental ideas. That wasn't something that was made up after. She, that's something that people spoke of in her lifetime. And of course, there's like this crazy disparity between like how much respect she commanded in her lifetime and the lack of care she received during her lifetime. That's something that we all have to live with. That sh- uh, this woman who's been deified 30 years since her passing really died with nothing. And yet she was the Rosa Parks of this particular branch of the human rights movement in America. I saw her all the time on Christopher Street as a student, but I met her at Gay Pride and I kissed her hand and I told her I loved her and I thanked her. That's the only interaction I ever had with her. And she was super gracious to me. It was also just like peak AIDS, 1992 in New York. It was a very deathy time. It was like a, a sort of expressions of joy, but with a veil of death over everything. That was how it felt as a kid, arriving in that moment. And um, she passed away like a couple of days after that. And um, it just hit me at a certain point in my very young life where I think because I was still looking for family and for, for reason and connection, I just like wanted to carry that story. And so I, I always carried it from then to now. And that's why I decided to call the record Johnson's again and have a picture of her on the cover at last. All my work has had some relationship to, well, say broadly to this this notion of sacred ancestry and the ways that that's informed me aspirationally and otherwise. I don't really believe in everything being so separate. I think things are quite porous, you know. The beautiful sentiment of, of you be free, my back was a bridge for you to cross, now you can be free. It feels like it's almost like the end of a cycle and the beginning of the new cycle is like it must change, like now we need to like work on change again. Did you intend this record as like sort of a cyclical record where you, you play it once through and then you have to go back again and the cycle repeats? Yeah, that's the best case scenario. Like if anyone even listens to whole albums. But I mean, if someone were to listen to a whole album, yeah, listen to it twice. <laughs> you know, the idea is like motherhood, like 
we're told, you know, like people are supposed to get old and like preserve themselves and like die in a rest home and say as like soft and untouched as possible or, you know, but the truth about motherhood oftentimes is that like a mother breaks her back to like get her kids to adulthood. In my community and extended communities that I'm touched by, that there's been a lot of, of motherhood and a lot of people whose bodies turned into scar tissue in order to to walk through the trouble that was necessary for her to lift and carry the spirit to, to, to clearer pastures. You know, that's a part of motherhood is that a mother will break her back and that that's a life well lived. She did a good job. That it's not this kind of like milk toast idea that like a soft, you know, fluffy, wrinkly old thing, you know, at the end of life. Sometimes it's brutal. Like motherhood can be brutally hard. And someone like Marsha or Sylvia really embody that. You know, living can be hard for everyone. I guess what I'm saying is it's okay for it to be as hard as it feels. Like that it's a fantasy that this isn't supposed to be hard. That's like a weird Christian fantasy. Like actually life can be really, really hard. Trying to affirm that that is okay. That was Anoni talking to the faders Raphael Helfen. Anoni's new album, My Back Was a Bridge for You to Cross, is out this Friday, July 7, by a secretly Canadian. The Fader interview is engineered by Tony Giambroni. The executive producer is Alex Robert Ross, and the associate producer is Raphael Helfand. We'd like to thank Lauten Audio for providing our microphones. You can find them online at lautenaudio.com. And we'd like to thank James Ivey for providing our intro music. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd appreciate if you left a five-star rating and review. And keep an eye on thefader.com for essential music news, interviews, and essays. We'll be back soon with another episode of The Fader Interview. Goodbye until then.